God, turn the holiness of a song to the holiness of an evening long ago into the holiness that is only available through your Son and our Savior. And to that end, just as the angels declared and just as heavens opened, will you now speak forth your word that does not change? That handed down through generation to generation, your love and your goodness have been made available and made real, made tangible, and made known to us in this room. And so if there's anything that I have to say, oh God, that's of you, may it be taken to heart. If there's anything that I say that deviates from your will, your best for us, let the good news come now, O oh Father. Not only in word, but in power. And this we pray with great anticipation and in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said. This is a picture of philanthropist, of founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates. In 1994, Bill Gates paid $31 million for 72 pages of Leonardo da Vinci's notebook. And so scholars tell us that there's over 7,000 existing pages that are still floating around of the hand sketches, notes, uh, pieces of ideas, inventions, art, that came from one of the most creative and curious people in history. Here are some pictures of him thinking about the nature of planets and the way that light works. Some of the other pages that Bill Gates bought had to do with the flow of water. And so page after page, it seems that Leonardo, with all of these pages, he never went anywhere without his notebook. That wherever he was, he was always able to sit down and to think and to dream and to wonder and to draw, to sketch, to doodle, to observe. In fact, Leonardo was the kind of person who said that these five senses of you know, taste and hearing and sight and smell and touch, he referred to these as the five ministers of your soul. That what you get to observe and see ministers to the very core of your own being. And so Leonardo was not just an artist. He was not just somebody with great ideas. He was also a person who was constantly wondering and thinking. In fact, he performed over 150 autopsies himself personally. And somebody one time asked him why you would do something that most of us would think is pretty gross. And he said that we can rejoice that our creator has provided such an instrument of such excellence. His biographer, Walter Isaacson, once said this, Leonardo never ceased to be amazed by God's handiwork. Now, you may not carry a notebook around, but what about you? Are you amazed by God's handiwork? When you think about the people that you get to interact with, do you see them as the beautiful mysteries to be able to behold the handiwork of the people that you get to share life and friendship with? 
whatever it is that your calling is. As a student, is it for you just about passing exams or is it about your mind getting to explore the wonder of the handiwork of this world? Whether it's your particular vocation of what you get to do at your work or in your calling, do you approach each and every day with the curiosity and the tenacity of a Leonardo da Vinci? I know that I still have a long way to go. But one of the things that I am convinced about is that there is no Christmas without curiosity. We often talk about the faith of Mary, and yet we don't back up enough to be able to deconstruct faith to what is faith really, kind of the different components of it. And faith doesn't ever really occur. Trust cannot happen unless there's a sense of openness and wonder to what needs to be seen and experienced. And so I don't want to bury the lead today. Christmas cannot happen without curiosity. If the wise men had not observed the heavens and the stars and said, let's go investigate it, Christmas would have never happened. If the wise men had not gotten to Jerusalem and said, hey, we need more than the heavens to be able to see what's going on and that they were curious about the scriptures to be able to go, they would never have made their way to Bethlehem. If the shepherds had not been curious, they would have seen a great nighttime sky spectacular and they would have gone back to their work. But no, they were curious to go down to the manger in order to fall to their knees and worship. And that Mary, had she not been curious enough to be able to follow up on what the angel had said, that she would go and she would visit her relative Elizabeth to be able to see the confirmation of the promises of what the angel had promised, and so that was going to be true for her as well. There is no Christmas without curiosity. And so let's see if we can unlock some of that curiosity today in the series of messages that we're talking about in the famous story of the Annunciation. We've at first talked about the disturbing wonder of God's good news as it flies into our lives, the grander vision that that good news provides. But today, we're talking about Mary's response, her response as being one of curious trust. And we're going to look at the entirety of the Annunciation story starting in the 21st, 26th verse of the first chapter of Luke. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was married, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive. You will give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel since I'm a virgin. 
The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The first thing that Mary ever says in the Bible, the first words that ever come out of her mouth in the pages of the scriptures, is a question. How will this be? It seems that Mary's questioning rubbed off on her son. Somebody who has way more time than I do went through all of the Gospels and counted the number of questions. Jesus asks 307 questions in the Gospels. 183 of those questions are distinct questions. In other words, he repeats some of his questions, so apparently he has to ask the question more than once for us. And only three times does Jesus answer a question directly. Jesus is a good rabbi in his day and age. Oftentimes when someone asks him a question, Jesus follows up that question with a question, which infuriates us. But it also causes us to learn. Jesus says that we are to have faith like a child. Uh, Social scientists tell us that in between the ages of three and five, the average child asks on average 300 questions a day. Which is why G.K. Chesterton says that God has the eternal appetite for infancy, that we have sinned and we have grown old, and that our Heavenly Father is younger than we are. And that we have forgotten what it is like to have the curiosity and the wonder and the faith of a little child. What I don't want you to miss today What I want to make sure that you understand is that the primary enemy to our faith today is not hostility, but apathy. For I know a lot of people for whom they've just kind of thrown in the towel and they've just given up. Now, Mary asks a question, and we have to be clear that not all questions are created equal. There's different types of questioning. You probably don't like the questioning of having to sit in the chair and to be on the receiving end of a legal deposition. Neither do you like to be married to someone who puts you in a position where you feel like you are receiving a deposition. Neither do you like to be on the receiving end of investigative journalism. And nor do you like to be in friendship or relationship with people who ask the kinds of questions that feel like you're constantly being investigated. 
And so it seems to be that we can be asking the same questions and we can even be asking similar questions, but we have to get past the questioning for a moment to be able to get to the motive and the intention that is behind the questions. And this is what we see in the comparison and the contrasting of what happens in Luke's first chapter because you have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth first and you have the story of Mary second, both of which are a form of a miraculous birth. And then when the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him what's going to happen for his family, Zechariah, like Mary, leads with a question and asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? This sounds a lot like Mary's question to me, but what we find out later from the angel is it is because of Zechariah's disbelief that he will have to be quiet for a long period of time, which might be the only Christmas miracle that every woman in this house is like, yes! (laughs) Zechariah becomes mute. And in that moment, he is to sit in his disbelief. In other words, we have to ask the question when we come to a question, is this a curious question or is this a cynical question? Is someone really wanting to learn? Or are they just trying to prove their point? Now scholars today will tell you that there are two types of curiosity. One is the form of novelty and the other is the form of discovery. And while these two things are related, they are very different from one another in motive and in level of depth. Think of novelty as kind of the scintillation of kind of the endless scroll on the internet. Think of novelty as the stimulation that comes from seeing the most redeeming quality of the internet, which is funny cat videos. But that's certainly not discovery, is it? Discovery takes more work. It's deeper. It's harder. There's a deeper sense of awe and wonder in the journey of discovery. And the premise of what I want to make sure that you that you're tracking with me on this is is that we are addicted to novelty today. And because of that, we are losing a true sense of discovery. And that according to the social scientists, we see this in four different ways. We see this in terms of saturation, stagnation, stimulation, and self-confidence. We see this that we live in a day of the information age where we are so full of information that we just feel like we can't take any more in. And so we're no longer curious. Or we get to the point of stagnation that we don't grow anymore. And the reason that we're not growing anymore is because we're at the point where we feel like that we are so satisfied relationally and otherwise that we no longer have the ability to dig deeper in our own personal growth or in relationship with others. Or when it comes to stimulation, one of my doctoral professors said that we are thrilling ourselves to death, that we are addicted to the happy chemicals of what it means to get that novelty over and over again, and so we just stay at that surface level and we're like a jet ski on the waves bouncing from one stimulating thing to another but never really getting beyond that. Or self-confidence. We no longer want to be able to get news from objective news sources with 
journalistic ethic, you know, ethics, we want to have a curated news feed that only tells us and feeds us what we already know and believe so that we are never challenged in our confidence of our opinions or our convictions. Unless you think that I'm being critical with this research of the world and not looking at ourselves, let me tell you, I think these four things are not only things that we can point at the world and say is an issue. We can point at ourselves and say the church, that we have a problem with these things. That the typical American congregation is so caught up in the information age of saturation that we will dumb down the gospel to the point where it's no longer the meat of what the scriptures and what the good news is with good history and theology and all of that. No, we just, we just give people Christian self-help. That's all they can handle. Or the stagnation. We settle in the church for consumerism because we think that relationships are just too hard and too messy. And so all that we care about in the church is that you do this and you do this and you do this and you show up at these programs and we think that that's how you're going to grow or make disciples. But That consumer Christianity doesn't really satisfy. Or the the stimulation. I mean, have you noticed that in a lot of newer churches today that all that what happens is that we're just making the lights brighter and we're just turning up the amplifiers more, that it's about being able to feel and instead of church being a place of holiness and rest and even silence, that it's just about making you feel a particular way. From one emotional high Sunday to the next. And you know the fastest way to grow a church in today's society is to run to the political left or the political right and to create your own little religious echo chamber so that nobody ever has to be challenged by a God that is bigger than their preferences or their desires or how you vote. We are addicted to novelty and we are losing curiosity. And as a result, our witness of Christmas has diminished. Mary asks her question, How will this be? And the angels answer. Doesn't seem very satisfying at first. Because it's certainly not an explanation. How will this be? The answer answer that the angel gives is a person. The Holy Spirit. Great, that clears everything up. Thank you. But Mary leans into the mystery of God's own presence. For you see, behind all of our questions has to be a drive to not just know about, but to know of the other. This God, this maker, this heaven, this earth. 
want to introduce you to a man by the name of Malcolm Geit. He is an English poet. How does that look for a guy who's an English poet? This is like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had a love child. This is what it would look like. And I got to meet Malcolm Geit as a poet um, in the year 2012 when I was asked to be one of the speakers for the every three-year Oxford and Cambridge Festival um, that takes place in the old world. And he was one of the people presenting his poems. And earlier this last year, I picked up a tiny little book that he wrote, a gem of a book. It's called My Theology. The word within the words. And he writes this. I was an atheist when I came up to Cambridge as an undergraduate in 1977, having firmly and fully rejected the Christian faith in which I had been brought up. At first, I sought to replace it with a completely reductive scientific account of the world trying to persuade myself that all the mysteries of our humanity might be reduced to mere biochemistry. By the time I had arrived at Cambridge, I had begun to be skeptical of my skepticism. The depth and the power of my personal experience of poetry said that there must be more. I began to realize that the unwinding of enzymes and the outworking of selfish genes wasn't enough. So I was, I suppose, an atheist, gradually becoming an agnostic. At Cambridge, I fell in love with medieval literature and began, by way of research, to read some of the great theology that lay behind that medieval literature, particularly St. Augustine. I was deeply impressed and began to see that there was rather more to Christianity than moralizing sermons and church jumble sales. I I still didn't think it was really true that there was actually a God. But I began to tell myself that it was perhaps at least psychologically true, that it made some kind of interpersonal sense, even if it was, sadly, wasn't the actual case. And then one day, in the summer of 1979, I was reading the book of Psalms. Again, part as a background for medieval poetry. I was completely alone in an empty house in Ealing, and suddenly, reading Psalm 145 with the Bible open in my hand, I had an overwhelming awareness of God's own presence. Perhaps it was triggered by those verses, the Lord is near unto all that call on him, to all that call upon him in truth. But the truth was, I wasn't calling on him. I was reading aloud a poem addressed to him, safe in the naive assumption that he wasn't really there. But he was. Suddenly, he disclosed his presence to me. Many people read Psalm 145 for comfort. The Lord upholds all that fall and raises up all that are bowed down. But my sudden sense of God's overwhelming presence was not comforting to me at all. It was alarming. It's hard to put into words. At one moment, I was at the center of the room, the center of my life, the center of that circle in which we all find ourselves naturally when we open our eyes and look around, for we occupy the middle, and the the world extends in widening circles around us. And in the very next moment, I wasn't at the center at all. I was on the very furthest of edges. 
I was hanging over the abyss by a mere thread. For the center was now fully occupied by the only one who could ever be there. Do you still think that you are the center of your life? Do you still live your life in such a way where in different circles, everything orbits and relates around you? The death of faith and the death of curiosity is thinking that you're in the middle of it all. That you're the whole point of everything. And true faith really unlocks when you get displaced from the center of your own being and you realize that there is one at the core of reality that is bigger and grander and far more mysterious and far more lovely and far more beautiful and far more magnificent and far more holy than you and I could even possibly take in. This is what happens to Mary. She asks a question. She doesn't get an explanation, she gets a person. And the only bit of her response is so tiny, it's easy to put on the screen. I am the Lord's what? Servant. So much of our struggle and our resistance and our faithlessness is your unwillingness to see yourself as a servant of God. And that it's still all about you. There was a great study that was done a couple of years ago. It was really creative. They, um, in terms of the setting of this study. So they go to one of the most famous places in the United States for this first part. You know, there's this place where you drive on a twisty road, you come through a tunnel, and then on the other side of that tunnel is one of the most kind of grandest vistas and views, iconic in our country. This is kind of the first overlook of Yosemite National Park. And so these social scientists set up camp and as people come and they pull over into this section, they, um, for over 1,100 people, they just handed them a graph piece of paper and they said, we just want you, you don't have a lot of time, just draw a picture of yourself and what you see. And so they had everybody do that. And then they did and replicated the exact same study in another part of Northern California. They went over to this place. This is the Fisherman's Wharf. This is one of the most touristy areas of San Francisco. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of shops. There's a lot of people. And they did the exact same thing. They handed them a piece of graphing paper, and they said, hey, just draw yourself and what you see. 
can I show you what the result of this study was like in average? This is so cool. For the people who were in Yosemite, one, two, three, four, five blocks was the average height of a person in Yosemite. The average height of the Fisherman Wharf, almost 4x. Same question, different setting, different mindset. The point is this, are you a big person in a little world or are you a little person in a big world? Are you a big person with a little God or are you a little person with a really great big God? How you view God, how you view yourself, You may not have a notebook, not a physical one at least, but every one of you, and myself included, you could take your life and you could put it in a notebook. And when I get to the end of my life, there will be a notebook that says Richard Conwisher on it. And I can promise you this, no one is going to pay $31 million for 72 pages of my notebook. But you could look through that notebook. And you could see the questions I was asking. And you could see what I was thinking. And you could see what I was dreaming. And I could see that in your notebook too. And if I could peer into that notebook, it would tell me who you really are. and what you think about God. So let's pray. God, thank you that each and every day ministers to our soul through what we get to taste and see and smell, and that we can rejoice that our Creator has provided instruments of such excellence, and we can never cease to be amazed by your own handiwork. Lord, help us to begin our faith with an openness, a curiosity, and for us to be able to see how essential curiosity is, our questioning is to bring before you. And so forgive us for not being like little children, being old and apathetic, for losing our sense of wonder. Forgive us for our sense of skepticism and cynicism, our demanding of proof in an age instead of an open-eyed sense of awe. Help us to not be addicted so much to novelty, but to enter into the deep end of the pool of discovery, to know you, to look on that deeper level of learning and mystery. And God, in an age that is saturated and stagnated and is so addicted to stimulation and is overconfident, will you help the church to be different? The people coming here would experience not all of the answers and the explanations, but the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that we would know we're little people in a really big world. 
with an even greater God. And this we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.